Thank you for listening to the Grace Chapel Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our senior pastor, Kurt Henman. For more information about our church, visit our website at gracechapel.cc or follow us on social media at Grace Chapel, Ohio. We'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. Our text this morning will begin in Romans chapter 12, verse 8. And the title of our message is The Gift of Mercy. The Gift, (coughs) excuse me, of Mercy. Now, God grants to us the gift of the Holy Spirit when we receive Jesus Christ by faith, when we trust in Him for our salvation, God grants to us His Holy Spirit as a gift to us by His grace. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And when the Spirit comes into our lives, He comes loaded with a bunch of other packages. And He does so in order to work in and through us far beyond what most of us believe or even imagine that He could do with our lives. We, we struggle to embrace all of what God reveals to us in His Word. We, we stagger, we stumble at the promises of God. I love Hebrews talking about Abraham's faith that he did not stagger at the promises of God. Even though he was 100 and his wife was 90, he had walked with God long enough. He blew it a lot before then. But he walked with God long enough. He's like, yeah, God's got this. I, I'm not even going to stagger at the fact that he can make us fruitful even though, you know, I'm 100. And so God grants to us his gifts by the Holy Spirit, but those gifts are not for accumulation in our lives. They are for delivery. You know, we're kind of like the Amazon truck. We just, we don't accumulate them, we, we pass them out. We receive them to pass them along to others. And so listen, we've been unpacking the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we've gone through the whole list in 1 Corinthians 12, and now we've gone through the list here in Romans chapter 12, and we find ourselves at the very last gift in this list, which is the gift of mercy. Now, next week, we'll go take a look at Ephesians, and there's one more gift, at least in the lists that are given in Scripture, that we'll cover. And, of course, you know, there's overlap ones where they're mentioned more than once. But there's one more gift that we'll pull out of Ephesians and unpack next week. And uh, then uh, we'll go into our series on First John and I'll... I'll hand out some homework to you and that sort of thing. And uh, hopefully you'll do some pre-homework. And I, I, I got some, a, a gift for you if you, uh, if you do so. So uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 8. Always last one there to give you time. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads 
with zeal. And so, you know, listen, we've unpacked all those gifts. You remember the the leadership gift, the administration gift, the exhortation gift, the, the giving gift, and now the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so when it comes to the idea of mercy, it is in contrast with the idea of justice. And justice is getting what we deserve. You know, people will say, man, uh, he deserved it. <laughs> Boy, they, they, they got what they deserved. Well, that is justice, but mercy is the opposite. You know, mercy is not getting what we deserved. And the truth of the matter is, listen, I, I deserve justice every single day. But instead, God gives me mercy. And I am so grateful for an unbelievably good and merciful God who chooses to love me. And so mercy is contrasted with justice. And in unpacking the idea of the gift of mercy, I kind of want to begin by first talking about what it is not in hopes of bringing clarity to, to what it is. And so with that said, you know, uh, there are some people who show mercy uh, with a sense of dutiful reluctance. <laughs> and by that I mean, for example, you know, I really want to pound your face into the dirt, but I guess I should show you mercy. The Bible tells me so, you know. I guess I have to. That's not the gift of mercy. Or some people, when they show mercy, they'll, they'll let you know how much it hurt. They'll, 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 they'll somehow extend you a measure of mercy, but they have to add, well, I, I just want you to know we'll probably never recover from this. They, they want to slap on there a sense of remorse. They want you to really get their offense and and so their extension of mercy is really a veiled payback they want to jab you with their their posture of supposedly giving mercy well that is not the gift of mercy either Turn to Job chapter 16. Job chapter 16. It's right before the book of Psalms, if that's helpful. Job chapter 16. In Job chapter 16, we have uh, a classic example of what the gift of mercy is not. <laughs> And so in the book of Job, uh, it is about a man whose name is Job. And if you read the book, you find Job is a man who was encountering extreme, extreme difficulties and trials in his life at this time. And he has some friends that come to, to comfort him, to, to help him and 
And instead of coming with, with mercy, they come trying to figure out what is the cause of his problems. And, and each of them, as they interact with Job, they each have their theory of what they think is the cause of Job's problems. And, you know, they, they accuse him of being a hypocrite. And they accuse him of being a liar. You know, come on, Job, you're just lying to us, you know. Or they accuse him of, hey, man, we know that there's got to be some secret sins going on here, Job, you know. Or, or God wouldn't be punishing you so much. But if you continue to read the book of Job, then you know that Job was going through the trials that he was going through for the glory of God. It's a difficult story to understand. But it unveils for us kind of a, a spiritual reality and what you see in the book of Job. Job didn't even know why he was going through his trials. He was never told by God. He knows now that he's in heaven. But we're told by the Holy Spirit that there was a divine council happening in heaven. And in that divine council, Satan arrives into the courts of heaven and says, Hey God, why do you love all this humankind people? None of them love you, man. None of them are righteous. And God says, Have you considered my servant Job? He, he loves me. He's He's righteous. And Satan goes, well, you know, that's because you put a hedge around him and your favor is upon him. Listen, you take away that hedge. You take away that favor. You let me get at him. He'll deny you. He'll turn on you. He'll give up on you. And so God said, I will allow it, but you can only go so far. And so that is what happened. And ultimately, Job does pass that trial and God redeems him and God blesses him, but um, he doesn't give up on trusting in God, even in the worst of the worst of circumstances. And he does so as a testimony to God, as a testimony to the angels. He does so in the face of the accuser of the brethren. That's Satan. That's what he does, right? And so ultimately, these friends are around him saying, hey, Job, you need to do this. You need to do that. You know, people love being your Holy Spirit, don't they? They got it all figured out. You know, people like that, they just got it all figured out for you. That's Job's friends. And, and so ultimately, their presence and their counsel kind of gets to Job <laughs> And uh, he basically says this in verse 1 and 2, Job 16. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. <laughs> that is, with friends like you, who needs enemies? Thanks for coming, not. And unfortunately, there are many people who will come into your life. Many people who will pretend to be your friends. Many people who come as though they're there to help and they're there to comfort. Obstensibly, on, on the face of things, 
they're there to help you, to comfort you. And, and yet in reality, when they leave, you wish they would have never come. And so that is what the gift is not. Well, what is the gift of mercy? Well, the gift of mercy is the ability given by the Holy Spirit to minister compassion, hope, and help to those who are under difficult circumstances. It is the ability given by the Holy Spirit to minister compassion, hope, and help to those who are under difficult circumstances. That is ultimately the gift of mercy. People with the gift of mercy are hope dispensers. That is, you know, so often in life, you know, we can get to the place where, you know, because of our own foolishness, we've just blown it so much. You know, we drifted from God. We we kept going in that direction. We knew better, but we've blown it so bad, we just, we don't know the way back. We don't, we don't know what to do. Or sometimes life just, you know, it, it kicks us and hits us so many times that the trials of life just kind of break us down and, and we just want to give up and throw our hands in the air and say, you know, I, what's the point? What's the point of even trying? So the person with the gift of mercy comes into those moments with such cheerfulness, with such joy, with such confidence in God and His goodness and His trustworthiness, and they just lift you out of your despair. They breathe life into you. They breathe hope into you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is such a wonderful and beautiful gift of God. And boy, is it needed today. Well, let's look at an Old Testament example of the gift of mercy. Turn to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. This is a classic example of the gift of mercy. I'm sure you know the story most likely. Genesis 50, we'll take a look at verses 15 through 21, but Genesis 50 is about Joseph, and Joseph had the, the gift of mercy. And if you know the story of Joseph, Joseph was born, he had many brothers, and God gave Joseph a dream. And in that dream, he told Joseph he was going to rule, and he was going to rule over his brothers. And, you know, his brothers didn't like that too much, and so some of them wanted to kill him, but they ultimately sold him into slavery. But God was with him. God's favor was upon him. And if you read the whole story, listen, Joseph had the gift of wisdom. He had the gift of administration. He had the gift of interpretation. And if you read the story, you will see those gifts being operative in his life. 
And so Joseph prospered in whatever post and whatever circumstance that he found himself in. And ultimately, God elevated him to second in command in Egypt, which was second in command of the world at that time. And in that post, God revealed to Joseph by the Spirit that there was going to be a seven-year famine that was going to come upon the world. And he revealed it through Jonah's gift of interpretation, if you know the story. He interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And in doing so, Pharaoh said, listen, Joseph, you know, God's obviously blessed you with gifts, and I'm going to put you in charge of preparing the world for this coming famine. And so Joseph was put in charge of preparing for this famine. And the famine came upon the earth, and Egypt distributed food across the world as needed, as necessary. And obviously it prospered Pharaoh. They made tons of money and that sort of thing. But ultimately, his brothers were affected by that famine and they had to come to Egypt to get food from Joseph. And and listen, they were afraid because they were afraid they were going to get justice from Joseph and they knew they absolutely deserved it. So that picks us up on verse 15 here. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So they they lied. (laughs) And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph, here's his response, wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Verse 21 So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That is, Joseph showed mercy with cheerfulness, with kindness. He did not give them what they so, so deserved. He just entrusted himself and all of that to God. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Take a look at a New Testament example of the gift of mercy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Those are Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. First and Second Timothy, Second Timothy, one, verses fifteen through eighteen is what we'll take a look at. 
And here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, we're introduced to a man named Onesiphorus. And Onesiphorus had the gift of mercy. So take a look at verse 15. This is Paul speaking. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellius and Hermogenes. That is, Paul is down and out in his ministry. He, he is not popular at this time. He is in prison, and his ministry partners, his his fair-weather friends have abandoned him, not only abandoned him, turned on him. Verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. That is, it, it wasn't so with Anisphorus. When, when Anisphorus saw me, he, he came to me. He, he came alongside me. He, he didn't turn from me. He, he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He wasn't ashamed of what I was standing for. He blessed me. He refreshed me. He breathed hope and life into me when I was at the worst place. That's the gift of mercy. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. In other words, God, be merciful to him as he was merciful to me. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. And so Anisiphorus had the gift of mercy. We'll turn to Matthew 20. Matthew 20. And what I want to show you, Matthew 20, starting in verse 29 is where we'll look. But in Matthew 20, what I want to show you is that Jesus had the gift of mercy. And so we see here an example of that, verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, I just want to make kind of a side point here and say to each of us to lean forward in faith in our requests of God. I love that these blind men, when the crowd told them to shut up, they got louder. Because I, don't, don't you feel like that? I just feel like the world tells me to shut up. I just feel like Satan tells me to shut up, to give up, to not believe. That the darkness just surrounds me and says, you know, stay, stay blind. God's not going to allow you to see. You're, you're not going to see his provision. You're not going to see his power. You're not going to see him move in 
in this generation. Do you ever hear that, friend? I think we should take a page from these two blind men and just get louder. God of mercy, move on my behalf. God of mercy, I'm not shutting up. I'm asking, Lord, in your mercy, move in my situation, in my life, in my church, whatever it is. That you need God to desperately show up. So I love that. I love these guys' attitude. Verse 32, and stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, in compassion, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And so I've tried to show you that Jesus had all the gifts, right? So in, in all the gifts, I tried to come back to Jesus and show that Jesus was operating in all the gifts of the Spirit. And we see him operating in the gift of mercy and the gifts of healing here in this passage. Now, with that said, God is the source of all comfort, of all mercy. That is, mercy flows from the very character, the very essence, the very nature of God himself. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Exodus chapter 34. We'll take a look at verse 5 and 6. Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, we find Moses. Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God. And God met with him and ultimately gave him the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. And and then Moses made his way back down the mountain to, to give the law of God to the people. And what he found was the people rebelling in the valley. They thought maybe... Moses had died. He was up on the mountain so long. They, they went back to their old ways. You know, they made a golden calf. And, you know, they were doing the idolatry, the immorality thing. They just went back to worshiping like they did in Egypt. They tried to make the best of things out in the wilderness. It's interesting when faced with difficulty, we run to foolish things to save us in the moment. And so that's what they were doing. And Moses ultimately was angry and he threw down the tablets that God gave him and he broke them. And then he headed back up the mountain and God met with him again. And then God gave him, made for him a new set of tablets, a new set of the Ten Commandments. And that brings us up to verse 5 here. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that is Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now that is God's description 
of himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I point that out because that is so different from the concept that most people have of God. Because Satan is constantly distorting the picture of who God is. Constantly distorting it in the world. Constantly distorting it in our own hearts and our own wounds. Constantly twisting the character of God. And he does so to keep you from his love. To keep you from his life. To keep you from his power to keep you from his presence because he knows if you're close, you're dangerous. You'll walk in his victory and you'll bring others into victory. And so he goes after your relationship with God. Your concept of God will determine how you behave. And so many people struggle with the idea of God being a loving, good, and trustworthy Father. Some of us struggle with that because our Father was not that. Uh, maybe He was not patient. Maybe He was angry. Maybe He was absent. And so God feels absent to you or He, he feels inconsistent to you and so Satan will take that and say, you know, this is, this is what God is like. He will twist those wounds of your heart. And, and yet God is not like that at all. Some people think that God is like a cosmic sheriff in the sky. <laughs> you know, just looking to pounce on you the moment that you do something wrong. And yet God is not like that at all. He is a loving Father who is unbelievably gracious and merciful. And yet so many of us, even Christians, struggle to really live in the fullness of that. We struggle to really, really understand how unbelievably gracious and merciful He is. But when we really get that, that actually is a greater motivation for holiness than the law itself. I mean, we should fear God. He is holy. The law matters. But you know, Paul said that the love of Christ compelled him, captivated him, took control of him. And and in that he meant he finally got how much God loved him. He could not... He, his only response to that was, I got to love him back. I want to love him back. It compels me to want to honor him. It compels me to want to please him. And because he finally got it, that, that God loved him beyond, that the God accepted him fully for who he was, where he was at. That even on your best day, you're still falling short, man. <laughs> Only by the grace of God, only by the mercy of God do we experience anything of God on our best day or worst day, friends. 
He is so unbelievably gracious and merciful to us. And the more we understand it, the more we'll actually walk in holiness because we'll be walking in love. Those of us who know God as a loving and good father, who we know that God is good. We, we know that, that he is trustworthy. We know that he is faithful. 1 John 4.18 says, A perfect love casts out fear. That is the, the fear of punishment. When we know how much God loves us, when we know that He is that kind of good and gracious God, we're not afraid of Him turning on us. We're not afraid of Him abandoning us. We're not, we're not afraid of Him leaving us or forsaking us. We're not afraid of Him not doing what is absolutely best for us. God is better than you could dream or imagine, friends. And He has chosen to place His favor upon you. And so He will never leave you or forsake you. He is good. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He will always do what is best for you. Now, we might not always understand it, but He is always working to protect us or to provide that which is better for us. Every time. I hear this all the time today. This is a super popular concept today of separating the New Testament God from the Old Testament God. Do you ever hear that? Hear it all the time, you know. It's a resurgence of it. I, you know, I kind of like the New Testament God. You know, he's nice. You know, he's positive. He's got some good things to say. Or even on theological lines, people want to say, hey, we... You know, we, we want to disconnect from the Old Testament. It's got a bunch of weird stuff in it. Let's just focus on Jesus. But, you know, I, I like the New Testament God. He's, he's positive. He's nice. The, the Old Testament God, he, he's kind of cranky. He, he's got rules. He, he's wrathful. Well, in actuality, if you actually take a look at the entirety of Scripture, the Old Testament has more references to the grace and mercy of God than the New Testament does. That's why I brought you back to Exodus. And if you do not think that the New Testament God is wrathful, then you have not made it to the book of Revelation Because in the book of Revelation, God will judge Satan and unbelievers with a wrath beyond anything this world has ever seen. That is, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are exactly the same God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you've watched this series, I ho hopefully you've seen that. I've tried to go to the Old Testament and the New Testament show that even the idea of the Holy Spirit is the same from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. But it's the same God. 2 Corinthians 1.3, take a look on the screen. You don't have to turn there. It says, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That is, listen, God is so abundant in mercy and comfort. He is the source of all mercy and comfort. And so, therefore, listen, friends, run to Him in your failure. Run to Him in your need. Don't run away from Him. Hebrews 4.16 encourages us. Take a look on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is again, look to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Don't don't run from Him. Don't hide from Him. Don't, don't despair. Don't just, you know, continue to sin because you, you think, well, I've blown it. I might as well keep going. That is the devil's counsel looking to destroy you and separate you from the mercy and grace of God. Turn to Him. Look to Him. Listen, wherever you're at today, whatever you need today, look to Jesus and thus receive the mercy and find the grace that you so desperately need right now in your failure or in your need, whatever it is, or both. He is here. He is the God of all comfort. He will Come and meet with you and move in that need. He will, friend. I testify to it. There are times where I felt he waited way beyond what I wanted him to. But he always comes. He always moves. He is always faithful. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter Verse 23 through 26 is what we'll take a look at. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. Verse 23 begins, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that Greek word for sin there is the Greek word harmatia. And it means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. It means to miss the bullseye, like when you're shooting a bow and arrow at a target. And so what Paul is saying here is, listen, we have all missed the perfect mark of God. <laughs> Anyone have your perfect card still? We, we have all missed 
that mark of perfection. We have all sinned and fallen short. Verse 24. Here's the good news. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And so Paul is speaking here of the gift of salvation that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. And he talks about three themes in regards to our salvation. He talks about justification. He talks about redemption. And he talks about propitiation. Well, justification or justified is the idea. It's a legal word. It references a court of law. And so in God's economy, in God's world, sin has a judgment. It has a penalty, and that penalty is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And so in that court of law, God is a righteous judge. He's gracious, but he's also righteous. God is a righteous judge, and we are there, and we are Guilty. Guilty as charged. We are sinners. But God, not only being the righteous one, becomes the one who will give his righteousness. And so Jesus steps down, takes off his robe, and he comes to earth, and he dies on the cross. He pays the death penalty that's required by God's righteousness on our behalf. And he wipes our guilt away. He takes our sin away. And in its place, he puts his perfection. He puts his righteousness. And so when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees the perfection of Christ. And so we have right standing with God. We are justified. That's what justified means, made right. We have right standing with God. Or another definition of justified is this, just as if I never sinned. And so we're brought back into right relationship with God, and thus we can have a relationship with a perfect God because of Christ's work on our behalf. The second theme that he talks about is redemption, and that's a word from the slave market. Jesus Christ has redeemed you from slavery. I know you think that you were just doing your own thing, making your own choices. No, you were actually in bondage to the devil. You were actually in bondage to your flesh. You were actually in bondage to your fear. You were actually in bondage to the world and its rat race. You weren't free. But Jesus comes along and He breaks the chains of sin. He breaks the chains of addiction. He breaks the chains of the world and of the devil over your life. He 
redeems you. He sets you free. He transfers you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He's redeemed you. He's pulled you out. He's ransomed you out from the bondage of sin and slavery into the freedom of the Spirit. Wherever the Spirit is, there is freedom. And then the third theme that he unpacks is propitiation. So propitiation is a religious term. And it means to make sacrifices to the gods. There was a sacrifice required by God. And Jesus paid that sacrifice with His blood, with His own life. And the Father looked down and said, that sacrifice is good and acceptable and complete and final. As Hebrews 7.27 says, He died once for all. And so Romans 15 or 25 and 20, 25 continues. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is, we are saved by placing our faith in Jesus. When we choose to look to Jesus, then listen, we are set free from our sins. Our guilt is washed away. And we are made right in God's eyes by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not not because we're good. (laughs) Not because we deserve it. Not because we're such lovely people, but because Jesus was good. Because Jesus was just, He can then become the justifier of us. And Jesus' work on the cross, His righteousness is imputed to us, put upon us, and thus we become children of God. Thus we become in right relationship with God. And thus we can receive all the other gifts that we've been talking about. The gift of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and all the rest of the gifts of salvation and eternal life. They all come through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And our part, (laughs) our part in all of that is just to receive it. It's a gift. Jesus paid for it. He now offers everything He has for us from now into eternity as a gift from His grace. Our part is to believe Him, to receive it, to say yes to Him, to enter in to all that He's done for us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more sermons like this, visit us online at gracechapel.cc.